Welcome to Bulls, Bears, and Pigs podcast presented by SizeTrade.com. Simplifying technicals, fundamentals, and market psychology for one goal and one goal only to help you make money in all market conditions. Good morning, Size Traders. This is Amos here with Gary, head trader at Size Trade. Gary, thanks for being with us today. Good morning, Amos. How you doing? Good. Gary, we had a question come in from one of our users, Chris. He trades a lot of different instruments, uh, but he wanted to ask you specifically about stocks. So his question was the following. Gary, I day trade futures, but I also hold some stocks longer term. On CNBC and on your podcast, I've heard that the markets are expensive here. I was hoping you could explain what metrics you look at to evaluate if stocks are expensive or cheap. Okay. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, we don't really talk much about this, so it's a good question. When you hear it on TV that uh, stocks are historically expensive, they're typically talking about P-E ratios, uh, which is just very simple price divided by earnings per share. So when you look at historically, every sector has a different P-E ratio, but also the overall market has a historical P-E ratio. People like to say it's in the mid-teens, 16, 17. And when you're, so when you're trading at 18 times earnings, and then it, it gets a little bit even more complicated because you have estimated P-E, which is the future P-E, which we don't know for sure. So it's based on analyst estimates of what the company will earn versus actual P-E, which is last year's P-E, which is typically, if you do that, then the P-E ratio goes higher because typically stocks uh, or companies increase their earnings year over year. So again, if you look at backwards looking data and last year's P-E ratio, typically it's higher. If you look at forward looking P ratio is typically lower. And then some people like to go out, not this year, but even next year, which I think is foolish because nobody knows what anybody's going to do next year. Nobody knows what the economy is going to do. So I personally, if I do look at the P ratio, I try to look at the P ratio of what they're expecting this year. Uh, I also do look at last year's P ratio. So they're expecting a big uh, growth rate. I need to figure out why that growth rate and, and see if it's reasonable, if something that I agree with. Uh, my, my favorite metrics that I look at actually is the PEG, which is uh, price divided by earnings divided by growth. And um, the reason I like to look at that is is it makes it it makes it a little bit more simpler for me because just because historically a sector or, or a company has a historic PE ratio doesn't necessarily mean that the environment that we're in today is conducive to that. So just to give you an example, uh, it used to be that consumer staples would trade at a 10 uh, multiple. And the reason why is because they had relatively low earnings growth. They were seen as safe companies. Let's take uh, Procter & Gamble as, as an example. And then all of a sudden in the 2000s, you saw the devaluation of the dollar. dollar started becoming weaker, particularly against currencies, not only the euro, but also against the Brazilian real, uh, pesos in Latin America, different currencies all around the world, the Australian dollar and so on. So Procter & Gamble, which had 60% of its earnings coming from overseas, all of a sudden their growth rate started to climb up and, and wasn't growing at the traditional 7% every year, 6% every year. All of a sudden, because of the earnings uh, conversion back to dollars, was growing in the low teens. So in this case, I don't think that the historical B ratio for a company like that is accurate when we're looking at the last tw the previous 20 years in that case when the dollar was very stable to strong all the time. So the, in environments that change, it's good to look at the actual growth rate of each individual company so, Gary, and, or if I, sector. If I could just ask, when you mean growth rate, you're talking about year-to-date uh, year growth rate, right? It's not future growth rate? 
it's year over year growth rate. So I look at, I, you know, you could look at the previous year's growth rate to get an example, but I also look at the estimates of where, you know, analysts are, are not going to hit the estimate 100% of the time, but they'll kind of be in the ballpark. So sometimes, so what I do personally, what I do is I look at last year's growth rate and I say year over year growth rate. So let's take, you know, we're in 2017. So let's take 2016. So I look at a growth rate of a company and say, okay, between 2015 and 2016, this company increased their EPS earnings per share by 10%. Then what I do is I break that down and say, where did that growth rate come from? So I look into the businesses and I see, okay, well, 6% of it came from buybacks. 1% 1 came from currency, uh, positive or negative. So if the dollar is strong, typically that's a negative uh, earnings catalyst for them because their price, they're selling in euros or they're selling in yen. And when they're converting back to the dollar, they're making less dollars for it. So, so I take all of it into account and I say, okay, I see. So their growth rate came from some of it from buybacks. Some of it was a negative from, from currency because the dollar was strong. Uh, organically, they grew 3 or 4% just because they're increasing market share. They're increasing volumes. They've got into new businesses. Maybe they did a, you know, a purchase of a company. So I take a look at all of that in one and say, okay, I make sense. the growth rate to me makes sense. So now let's look forward, and this is what analysts are expecting. Analysts are expecting another 7% of growth. And then I kind of take a look at it and say, okay, are we conducive to that? Well, let's look at their buyback program. Is their buyback program still large? Do we expect them to renew it when it's up, if it's up anytime soon? Do, do you wait? Do you wait the, let's say you gave the example that a company is growing at 10% and 6% buyback, uh, 3%, let's say organically, another 1% in currency. Do you weight those differently in your assessment? So I, I don't weight them differently, but what I do is I, I want to make sure that they're going to continue. Uh, that's to me the most important part of future growth rate because I, th I feel like analysts are lazy a lot of times. And they don't look, they just kind of just, okay, well, they're growing at 7%, so we'll give, them, we'll give them the courtesy and say, you know, they'll grow at 7%, and then we'll say that, oh, we think that the market is, is bullish, oh, and we think the economy is doing better, so we'll give them an extra 1% or 2%, or vice versa, the economy is doing poorly, so we'll take away 1%. The reason, so the, reason I I, the reason I ask is because we've talked a lot about buybacks and the negative effects uh, long-term, I suppose, on, on buybacks. And let's say you had two companies growing at 10%, where 60, 70% of one company was due to buybacks and the and the other company was only 20% due to buybacks and the rest was organic growth, would you weight that differently? I guess that was my question. Yeah, for sure I would. Well, there's two two things. First of all, you have to ask yourself, what's your time frame? So if you're looking out 10 years, 15 years, which I, I don't think many people are these days because it's so easy to buy and sell stock and so cheap these days with commission rates where they are. So I don't think people are worried about the very long-term negative effects of buybacks that you're, you're putting debt on on the balance sheets. And as long as the market's not concerned about that, you're okay. I think if the eventually the market will start looking at balance sheets and saying, okay, this company has a good balance sheet, this company has a bad balance sheet, and so on. At that point, you have to be a little bit more selective because you're going to see outperformance of companies that have good balance sheets. Uh, I think that's going to come closer to the, the last phase uh, or the beginning phases of a recession. Because that's when people care. Because when times are good, you're always going to have money flowing into the economy, into into stocks. Uh, companies are always going to be able to refinance debt. But as we enter or the last inning of the bull market and start looking at a recession, that's where companies are going to say, "Okay, how?" Oh, not companies. Sorry, uh, investors are going to say, "How are these companies going to be able to go forwards and raise money in bad times?" 
uh, it's easy to raise time, money in good times. So that's part of it. But also what I try to look at is if a company has a small buyback and we're in a time where buybacks are very popular, maybe that would be very good. And you can't find many companies that have small buybacks that have the ability to do it. But if you can, you could say, oh, well, maybe activists are going to come into this company. And if an activist comes into this company, then they can persuade the company to do a bigger buyback and thus increase earnings. So if you have two companies that are growing 10% and one is relying heavily on buybacks and one isn't, then most likely the one who's relying heavily on buybacks probably doesn't have much uh, room to grow to get more juice out of the buybacks to increase their EPS, as opposed to the company that has a good balance sheet, doesn't have very uh, big buybacks, they have still ability to juice it. So if you're comparing apples to apples where they're 10% to 10%, and one company has the potential to boost earnings by 2-3% by, by doing a big, big buyback, that's obviously a positive, and the market will reward it with a higher P ratio, knowing that that's a possibility eventually to do. Like Apple, uh, for many years, the problem is with Apple, it's such a large company, and activists have tried to, and failed to uh, motivate Tim Cook to do some buybacks or buying out companies. But but typically, it was it was seen that Apple had this all this money overseas and had the ability that if they bring it back, uh, when they repatriate, like if Donald Trump's able to pass something to to bring back the cash, they're going to push, push a, a lot of that money into buybacks, which will increase their EPS. So actually, if you see, the iPhone 7 hasn't done really that well. It's uh, the first time, I believe, they had negative year-over-year uh, iPhone sales and iPad sales are down. So a lot of that is like, wow, you know, Apple should be doing poorly. But you see Apple breaking out to a new high, and a lot of that has to do with the, the hope that repatriation will allow them to buy back a big portion of their stock. I think they have $100 billion overseas uh, that they'll be able to bring back if, if uh, Trump gives them a favorable tax rate. So get, getting back to the initial question about what I look at, what's expensive or not, I look at the PEG. Uh, and basically, so what I do is there's two ways of looking at the overall stock market and economy. There's top-down or bottom-up. Uh, I personally prefer for top down, which means I look at the overall economy, the world economy, and ask myself, okay, are we conducive? Are there tail tailwinds or headwinds? Are we conducive to growth, or or is it going to be a tough environment to grow? Uh, right now, in my opinion, we've been in a very tough time to grow. World world GDPs are are not anything to write home about. If you take out like China and you look at more of the developed countries like uh, U.S. and uh, EU, they're growing around 2%, which is really nothing great. It's not bad, but it's not good. So what I what I do is I, I take a look at that and I say, okay, so I know that if we have higher growth rate around the world, particularly U.S., Europe, China, then I understand that that will positively affect companies' earnings because that growth rate will translate into sales. If, if the company does business in those countries. So what I do first is I kind of look at the whole world and say, okay, the world is right now, we're stabilized. Uh, US looks like maybe growth rate could pick up. The reason why is because Trump is gonna pass some pro-growth uh, stuff. Uh, Europe is looks like it's finally steadied and now it's, the growth is picking up. One of the reasons why is because the Euro's cheap so their manufacturing is, going, is increasing. Uh, China, on the other hand, is slowing down. Uh, they're trying, considering China has its own structural problems, they're trying to pump stump stimulus because they can't afford that the Chinese economy slows down. Japan is at zero growth. 
I don't see anything very positive coming out of it. I don't see anything negative coming out of it. The rest of the world, you know, you have your hot spots and, and your weak spots. Uh, anything to do with commodities right now is obviously going to be weak with oil prices down in the 50s. Uh, you're going to see some weakness in Latin America, which relies a lot of these countries rely on oil uh, as main export. You're going to see continued weakness out of Russia, which is a huge uh, exporter of oil. You're going to see continued weakness in the Middle East. But again, the the world is consists basically of the U.S., Europe, China. They make up the biggest portion of uh, world growth. So we're seeing potential for U.S. growth from pro-growth policies from the president from President Trump. Uh, you're seeing some great uh, tailwinds for Europe with the weak euro. So I go from there. I, I deconstruct from there and I say, OK, well, now let's take a look at each individual country, uh, which I mentioned, you know, U.S., what are the prospects for U.S., what's the prospects for euro and so on. And again, I think uh, Asia is going to muddle through Europe as long as the euro could stay weak, is going to do well. U.S., as long as we could get some pro-growth uh, agenda through, is going to do well. And then I start looking at the actual company. Then I say, okay, well, then let's take Apple, just because we we mentioned it. Okay, where does Apple sell its stuff? Where does Apple? Where where is the majority of Apple's iPhone? Where 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 is the majority of the margins coming from? Okay, it comes from the iPhone. Now, okay, where do they sell the iPhone? Okay, they sell a lot in the U.S. They sell a lot of China, Asia. They sell a lot in Europe. Okay, so we see some strength in those countries. Okay, great. So so geopolitically and uh, growth wise. Apple is in an okay situation. You don't see any shrink, shrinking in any specific market that they really need. Now you go to the next step and you say, okay, well, what's going to affect uh, China, like China, right? So now we see that maybe if there's a trade war, that will obviously negatively affect Apple. Okay, that's a negative. Uh, in Europe, we don't see. I don't see personally any any negatives towards the iPhone. In America, I don't see any negatives. Okay, so China. So now we have to deconstruct it again and say, okay, what percentage of earnings come from from China? What's the probability of them being under pressure due to a trade war with the U.S.? And you give it a certain percentage that you believe might happen. In my in my personal opinion, I don't think uh, Donald Trump is going to start a trade war with China, or at least not anytime soon. So in my opinion, there might be some rhetoric, so it might affect their sales, but not in a big, major way. So now you have to kind of continue to de uh, deconstruct it to the sector and say, okay, well, how is the actual mobile phone uh, business doing? So in this case, you have to take a look and say, okay, you know, how is Apple doing versus some of the homegrown Chinese companies versus Samsung? So Samsung had its issues because the note blew up. It's not very popular anymore. So that's easy. But they do have competition from lower end phones that give you almost the same exact performance as an iPhone for, I don't know, a third of the price, something in that vicinity. So then you have to ask yourself, what is that? How is that going to negatively affect their earnings? In the U.S., we have a bigger issue, in my opinion, and this is a negative for Apple, and we're speaking specifically about one company here, is that we no longer have contracts. Uh, so what 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 we used to happen is the mobile operators. AT&T, T-Mobile, Sprint, Verizon used to have two-year contracts and to, to force people or to let them sign up for two years, they'd give you a very significant rebate on the phone. So they'd say a $700 iPhone, if you sign a two-year contract, we'll give it to you for $100. So you had this upgrade uh, cycle in the U.S. 
of every two years, you'd come in and trade up your iPhone, not because necessarily your iPhone was bad or you wanted a new iPhone, but just they were giving it away at such a subsidized price. You might as well take advantage of that price. Otherwise, you just sign the two-year contract because you don't have a choice and you get nothing for it. So this was a, obviously a really big positive catalyst for Apple because every two years they knew they were getting an upgrade cycle. That's why they would come out with the iPhone 6. And then the success is because the people who signed up for the two-year contract when the iPhone 5 came out will switch to the 6. The people who signed up to the two-year contract for the 5S would switch to the 6S. And this was a really big uh, tailwind behind Apple's earnings and ability for Apple to sell iPhones, which is a $700 phone, to basically the majority of people. Uh, T-Mobile a few years ago changed that equation and said, we're not going to do any more contracts. And what we're going to do is we're going to allow you to finance your phone. So we're going to do a very low-priced monthly fee for your for your service and then if you want a phone we'll finance it over two years so you'll end up paying what you were paying before with a contract but after the two years if you want to keep your phone your bill will go down a decent amount so what we're seeing now with that is that people are taking care of their phones much better because they know that every two years they're not going to get subsidized anymore and they don't longer upgrade the way they used to because they don't want to pay the extra 20 30 dollars a month that are, or $40 a month that will cost to uh, finance your phone. So they're happy holding on to their iPhone 6 for another year or two longer than they normally would uh, because they're not subsidized anymore. Gary, let me ask you something. Though. You're, you're going into real depth about how you would look at and how you would analyze it uh, from, from like a top-down way. But eventually, in order to come up with some sort of evaluation, we talked about PE, we talked about PEG, but what you're talking about how do you put numbers to that? How do you put numbers to the effect of okay? Well, now I think China is going to do X Y Z, and when I come down, when it comes down to it, I think Trump's policy is going to affect it a lot like so. But how do you actually come up with a number where okay, I think this is going to decrease the price or this is going to increase the price? Right. So yeah. So I'm oh, I'm basically there right now, which is once you go through from top down, you get an understanding of what you think about the business. So you say okay, Apple has. In this case, some headwinds, some tailwinds. Then what I look at, again, is the PEG. So what I do is I say, when times are really bad, like 2009 bad, I'm willing to only pay one times that growth rate. So if the growth rate is 10% year over year, I'm only going to be willing to pay a 10 PE ratio on it. So anything, anytime that the stock is trading at a higher PE ratio than 10, even though historically I know it's it's trades in the 20s and so on, I'm now personally willing to pay more than one times that growth. That very rarely happens. That's obviously an extreme. And the other side of the extreme, when everything is lined up and you're having growth everywhere and it's it's the sector is awesome and there's a lot of uh, tailwinds behind it pushing it forward, I'd be willing to pay by maximum two times growth rate. So if a company is growing at 10%, I'd be willing to pay 20%. Uh, sometimes you end up missing some great moves like Facebook and Amazon, companies that don't have necessarily great growth rates, but people are willing to pay on other metrics. So you have to sometimes take a look at other metrics to uh, decide how to value each individual company. But I'm taking the majority of companies. This is how I value them. So based on everything that the checklist that I do, which is start with world growth. Okay, world growth is doing on a scale of zero to 10, a little bit better than average. So let's take it as six or seven this year, uh, if we could get some of the stuff through. So, you know, then what I do is I start at one and a half times growth rate if everything is okay. 
So if the world growth rate is a little better, I'd be willing to pay a little bit higher for overall for overall stock. So maybe a 1.7 times uh, earnings uh, growth rate. So if it's growing at 10 percent, what I'm willing to do is I'm willing to pay 1.7. So I'm willing to pay 17 times earnings. I feel like that's fair value for me for any given stock or sector or overall market. Uh, then I start taking out stuff as well. So in this case, you know, China, uh, China is slowing down a bit. So that's obviously not great for Apple. Uh, the U.S., like I spoke about, might have some head, uh, sorry, some uh, caps of of growth rate because of the way that they realign the the uh, contracts. So that's a negative. Europe is growing well, so that's okay. So maybe now for Apple, because I think that world growth is going to be okay, but the actual mobile industry might have some issues, and China might have some issues. I might lower that back down to 1.5. So 1.5, and let's say, again, I don't know Apple's growth rate off the top of my head. Let's say it's 10%. So 10% times 1.5, so 15. So I'd be willing to pay 15 times uh, earnings. I think that's a fair value. So if it gets cheaper than 15, I think it's a great buy. If it's a lot more than 15, I think it's not necessarily the best buy. And if it gets outrageously expensive, then you have to start looking at it as a short and understanding why people are paying such a high multiple uh, for a company with not the best growth rate. Uh, usually there's a reason. So what ends up happening is you kind of have to take a look at an overall market. And that's when what the question was about, like CNBC and I speak about the whole market, is what's going on in the overall market? What's the growth rate? So we're, we're expecting or we're anticipating 10% roughly growth rate in uh, earnings per share for the S&P 500. And we're trading around 18 times those numbers. So now you have to ask yourself on a for for p ratio is it worth trading 1.8 times growth rate and in my opinion that's a bit stretched on the valuation not just historically but also with what i see there are positives to the u.s growth rate there are positives to european growth rates but i think there are some negatives to the asian growth rate there are some negatives to some of the oil producing countries so i, I personally think that we should be cl trading closer to around 16 to 17 times earnings so we're not outrageously priced but I just think that the market is looking very optimistically at a lot of stuff and they're not looking at any of the negative uh, countersides to that, uh, such as stagflation, if, if we do have a trade war. And again, the probability of those things happening are small, but you still have to price it into as a possibility of it happening. So in my opinion, I, I believe that the market is trading a bit expensive here due to the fact that. I don't think that we're going to hit that growth rate of 10%. I think those numbers are going to go down a bit, especially with the dollar being so strong. And even though we're really positive on the U.S. with the pro-growth agenda, we're positive on Euro with the uh, Euro region with uh, the Euro being weak, and we're hoping that Asia will find its footing this year, I, I, I just think 1.8 uh, times growth rate is a bit much considering that growth rate is going to probably come down anyway. So you might end up trading at that high end of two times growth rate by the end of the year if uh, earnings come down a bit and the, the stock market continues to stay at these elevated levels. You might get to that extreme level where you're not pricing in any negatives. Only You're only looking at the positives and everything is Goldilocks. And historically, that's when you get into trouble. You got into trouble. That That's what, typically what happened in 2007. Typically, what happened in '99? Actually, in 1999, you, you you know, depending on which sector, some of the metrics were really off off the charts, uh, specifically in technology. But even outside of technology, overall, the market was way too optimistic, and we were, we began trading as earnings started slowing down, 
and the market didn't to continue to ex- extend to the upside, what you ended up seeing is that those PEG ratios were coming to two. And anytime it gets to two, it has to be a perfect setup for it to be able to withstand that without a, a uh, major pullback. And uh, obviously it didn't. Obviously the tech bubble burst. Obviously the housing market burst in, in 2007. And we're getting close to that level that if earnings come down just a bit, we might be pumping up against that two level again. And that's a scary level to be buying stocks longer term. Well, Gary, as the saying goes, the markets never lie until they're wrong. <laughs> exactly. A hundred percent. You know, the one of the sayings that one of the first things that I learned and I, and I love this saying is the market is always right. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how sure you are about the outcome. At the end of the day, whatever the price action in the stock market does, that was the right thing to do. And if you look back at it and say, well, the market you know, looked at this and they were wrong. No, that doesn't matter. Market's always right because that's the price action and that's what we have to live with. Eventually, the market might realize and see it your way. But in the near term, if you're wrong, you're wrong. There's no there's no two ways about it. Gary, thank you so much for your time. Again, Size Traders, subscribe Size Trade Podcast. Until next time, this is Amos with Gary, Heads Trader at Size Trade. Gary, thanks so much. Thanks a lot.